0: of confusion that some people receive healing and others do not, and there seems to be a lot of different ideas and opinions as to why this is. So before we get into the lesson, perhaps maybe this week and perhaps next, depending on how we get along, I would like to set forth some things that I myself have observed and I think it might help us when we enter into the lesson there is a question. You see, a lot of people seemingly takes no effort whatsoever to claim their healing. Others seem to wrestle with the same sicknesses and the same diseases over and over, and yet receive no response. And the primary reason for that, I would say, the, from the most part and from everybody's opinion, simply is the, their faith is weak. Everything that we receive seems for the most part to stem from our lack of faith or the weakness of faith, and that's our inability to claim. Now, the question is in these areas, do we have faith or not? Is your faith weak? And then sometimes we ask, we get perplexed. How many have ever really gotten perplexed because... Our faith doesn't get us the results that we seem to think it ought to give us. I mean, we just sat perplexed and sit in confusion, we have diligently prayed about a request, and we believed it and believed for it with all of our heart. And yet it didn't happen. And even worse, the opposite seemed to have happened. How many's ever found yourself in that category? Praise the Lord. As they say, cheer up, things could be worse. And sure enough, I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. And like the little old lady that we've said, said, I feel bad every time I feel good because I keep thinking about how bad I feel when I quit feeling good. And a lot of us are simply like that. And we stand sometimes real perplexed because we believe with all of our heart, with all the faith that we could muster up into our good and precious God, that we have actually placed everything at the foot of the cross, throne of grace and mercy, did everything we possibly could, according to the Word of God, for these things to happen, and yet they didn't happen, and sometimes even the opposite seemed to happen. How many of you ever prayed for somebody to be saved, and it seemed like they just keep going farther and farther and farther away? Now, if we take the primary response to that, according to what they call uh, hyper-faith or naming and claiming and all of that, someplace, somewhere we've messed up in our belief. I mean, there's something wrong in our life. We haven't straightened our life out uh, to be justifiable unto God, or there's some little something our faith hasn't reached that pinnacle that it takes to please God, so he just naturally withholds his blessings for us. And at times like this, the Word of God really tries us because we read all of his glorious promises. Promises that all things are possible to them that believe. That is a promise, and that what the Bible says, isn't it? Ask, nothing wavering, and it shall be done. We read those. All things whatsoever you ask in faith, believing, you shall have them. And on and on and on you could go picking out precious promises of God, and we set our claim on them and believe them, for we know that God is not a liar, and we know that actually he wouldn't tease us with unreachable goals. We feel like that these goals are reachable, and yet seems like just try as we might, really try to believe, really believe, we're often left confused because the answer isn't in view because we can't see it. Now, as I said, according to the most common theology, there's three reasons why we didn't get an answer for what we asked for. Number one, either our faith is faulty. There's something wrong in the makeup of our faith, or there's sin in our life. You have to get the sin out of your life, or someplace along the line you have made a negative confession. You've said the wrong thing. You're made to believe that God has withheld the answer until your faith is improved enough to satisfy. Either the quality or the quantity of your faith doesn't come up to God's criteria for answered prayer. You have a lot of individuals that are sitting, wondering what's wrong with their life. And this is hard on an honest-hearted Christian that is actually, actually purposing in their life and in their heart To get prayers answered, it's hard on them to believe that they've done the best they can. I mean, honestly, have searched their life, have laid it all out. And yet, God's uh, the prayer that we prayed wasn't answered. And we're sometimes made to believe, now, it's bad enough. It's bad enough when we sat there, having done everything that we possibly could, and searched our life to the very depths of it. Now, a lot of people won't be honest with themselves, but I'm talking about honest individuals that's done their best, cleaned their life, done the best they could, and yet they sat there with unanswered prayer, and then it's hard enough. With that, much less somebody else telling you, coming up and telling you that your faith has to be improved. So you're standing there wondering, what improvement can I make? And it seems like the harder you try, the worse things you get and the uh, less confidence you have in yourself. It's a bad thing, isn't it, to have no confidence in yourself to believe that whatever you say or ask for from God will never happen. It's certainly a bad state of affairs, but yet there's a lot of individuals that are in that present position, and we're made to believe that God is obligated by His Word to answer every request the moment we reach the proper pinnacle of faith, I mean, it seems to all hinge on our abilities to believe God. There has to be, according to the uh, common sources, there has to be a proper pinnacle of faith. We climb that ladder, we have to reach it, and this includes from our vocabulary, removing from it negative thoughts, words, or confessions. In other words, never say anything negative. Always with a positive attitude, and with a positive attitude, then you're going to get from God. You see, you dare not offend God. You might offend God if you make a negative confession, if you say sometimes something that is negative. You might have been almost ready to get your desire, but something happened. You said the wrong words, so God's just going to take it all back. He's going to start you in at phase one again, and then you're going to have to start climbing that ladder again till almost you reach that pinnacle of faith where you get anything your little heart desires. And you make those positive confessions. You're always saying, it is, it is, it is, even when it ain't. Excuse the English. And I've said it before, God don't want us to lie for him. Amen? I mean, if you're sick, you're sick. And don't go around saying you're not. Amen? If you feel like that God has touched your body and he's healing you, I said healing you, then confess that God is healing you, but there's still something in your life, yet in your body, a sickness there. Don't go around lying about something, claiming something that you don't have. Simply it's not going to work. You can't force God into doing something And uh, whenever you say the wrong things, it doesn't mean that God's going to get down on you. Now, the truth of this whole theology and philosophy that is taking over the world is not only foolish, but it's a slap in the face of an intelligent, loving, heavenly Father that we have. Now, everywhere, and I've been a lot of places, there's Christians living in fear of saying the wrong thing are making the wrong confessions and thereby blocking the flow of blessings from them. They sat and there seems to be no blessings there, so they made the wrong confession and they seem as if God is hanging on every little word that his children say, ready to slap a penalty on them if they happen to speak out of line. It's not a good, kind, heavenly Father that is portrayed here. And this mode of thinking... I've said it often, I say it again, as hurt, it has disillusioned, and made shipwreck of the faith of a lot of good, honest-hearted Christians. You've got to world over, you might be surprised how many is in your community and town that's been hurt by the fact that they have been taught that if they can just get themselves in the proper pinnacle of faith and receive everything that God has for them everything out here in this world and they have done the best they could and nothing good seemingly has happened in their life. So why not? There is a faith teaching that's made them believe that getting every desire of the heart depended simply on getting a formula correct. How many of you heard just do these three things? This is seven steps to prosperity. Twelve ways in which you can reach and gain everything in this world that you have. Blot out, they say. Launch out into the prosperity of God. Launch out into perfect health. Conceive and then believe. Name it, claim it, and frame it. Whatever your little heart desires, all you got to do is start up that ladder. Never say anything negative. Get your faith in proper position. Get all the faith out of your life, and when you attain that one precious perfect place in God, your faith is at its perfect state, then God's just going to empty his world and lay it all at your doorstep. And it doesn't happen. Individuals are sitting waiting for these things to happen. I don't know how many people I have counseled that have laid themselves bare and said, I've done something wrong. I thought I was doing right, but I've done something wrong. If I haven't done something wrong, then these things would be mine and they're not mine. I said. I watch other people receive them, I haven't received them. So anything negative, block that out, block any, any thoughts of suffering, of pain and poverty, just block all of that out, because that's never going to be in God's way of thinking. You see, that's the positive faith idea. All you got to do is believe you'll receive a new car, Amen. You're going to receive uh, homes and going to receive furs and uh, jewels and diamond rings and whatever this world has, if you believe just right, it's going to be yours. Amen. So a lot of us here this morning haven't believed right. I don't see too many Rolls Royces driving up here. I don't see too many diamond rings on our fingers. Amen. So something's wrong here someplace. Something's amiss. We haven't really reached out to receive from God what is actually available for us. So when these things didn't happen, they made to believe it and your airwaves are filled with it. You've got to admit that. Almost every place you turn, it's a positive faith idea or it's whatever you want you can have. You just get your formula correct and all of that. And so when they did this and these things didn't happen, their world collapsed. The world they were made to believe in was gone. There had to be something wrong in their lives. They assumed that. And they were right in assuming that because this is what they had been taught, the mode of thinking that they'd been taught. But this morning, I want to share with you some what I feel like could be perhaps some very intriguing as well as healing thoughts about faith and love. Now, first off, I believe that God works miracles in answer to the prayer of faith. I believe that. I believe that every promise in God's Word, as it is, belongs to us. But through a lot of suffering, through a lot of tears, through a lot of confusion myself, I've discovered something I feel like wonderful about the way God works. I think it's going to be impossible for me to share probably all of that with us. Maybe I could at least share a few things. Three things they say that is wrong in our life that we don't receive. That's wrong confession. That's sin in our life. Our faith is faulty. Lesson number one that I think we ought to learn is this, that God is not motivated to act for us on our behalf as a result of our faith alone. That's not what God motivates God, not necessarily our faith alone. Now, the Bible says God is love, and love is what motivates God to act. How many of you know that? Love is what motivates God to act. let's, Let's just throw it out here. Suppose my son was drowning in a lake. Suppose as a good father I hear his cry, I'm a good swimmer, I have the ability to go get him, I have the ability to save his life. And he's frightened, and he's hysterical, and he calls on me with all his might. And he's surrounding. Now then, what do I do as a father? Do I stop and analyze his faith? Do I stop and wonder, does my son have faith enough in me to believe that I'm going to come out there and save him? Do I ask myself that question? Or do I just simply, out of love, out of concern, out of a good father, I just simply know I have the ability... And I don't ask him any questions. I don't ask him whether he believes me or not. He wouldn't be in any position to say anyway. He's hysterical. He's, he, he is simply frightened. Couldn't give the right answers. A lot of God's people in that position we're frightened sometimes. We're a little bit hysterical. We couldn't have faith really as far as that's concerned if it stared us in the face. And yet we're in trouble. We're sinking. We're drowning. We need something, something to hold to. Something to, to have some hope. And here's our Heavenly Father standing out there analyzing our situation. Here he is asking us, hey, you've got to have faith in me. Do you got faith in me? If you don't, I can't come out there and get you. Well, you see, I would move out, and you would too. Your son, your daughter, whatever it is, any trouble they're in, you wouldn't analyze your faith, their faith. You wouldn't try to see if they had faith enough in you or not. Your love would motivate you enough that you would go out there and get them and set them into safety in the hands of Almighty God. They are in your hand. That's the same way God is. God sees us sometimes when we are unable. Now this might go against the grain, but when we are unable to believe, there's times when we have strongly believed. But friend, what happens in our life? Our, our circumstances out here, our physical health, our mental outlook has a whole lot to do in our ability to believe in God. We believe He is, but there's something about it when we get in this position that we're just simply grabbing hold of a straw. We're in trouble, and God sees our trouble, and He loves us enough that He never asks us any questions he just comes to our rescue, and he gets a hold of us. No faith involved on our part because he's motivated by his love, not by our faith. And I like that. I said I like that. I think the biggest lesson I learned as I tried my best through eight years years of sickness and suffering and facing death, I tried my best to reach the place where everybody said I should not reach. I tried my best to remove every sin, every evil thought, every negative confession. I'd find myself a little while confessing things in my life that had never been there. Confessing a healing and it wasn't there, and I knew it wasn't there. And I was trying to confess something and it wasn't there. Trying my best to live up to expectations of what man said should be lived up to. Good ministers come, laid their hands on me, prayed for me. Nothing seemed to happen, told me I needed to get the sin out of my life. So naturally, when you're suffering, you want to do the best you can. So you go to God. You cry and tears flow down your cheeks. You're wondering, where is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is that power that cleanses you from all sin and iniquity? You've called on it, and yet for some reason it doesn't seem to be there. My friend, it's always there. It doesn't make any difference what man says or thinks if there's something in our life, and we have all sinned and fell short of the glory of God, but we have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is as real now as it was 2,000 years ago, and it can still forgive. So when we go to Him, Ask Him in faith, believing He cleanses us from sin. It should be out of our lives. And so there I was, saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things. My faith really wasn't reaching the pinnacle expectations of man, and I was still suffering, still dying, still trying to get a hold of what was mine, still seemingly going downhill, losing confidence in myself as a person. Myself as a child of God, the worst thing in the world we can do is lose confidence in ourselves as a child of God. And this type of thing will cause us to do that if we're not careful. And finally, the Lord began to speak to me in the night. (laughs) Hallelujah. When there is no comforter, God is your comforter. He will be there when everybody else has failed and nobody else seems to know. So in all of that, was not my faith? I'm going to say it again. It wasn't my faith that claimed the healing that Tuesday morning. I had simply said these words, God, you're not going to heal me, are you? I had said that because eight years was pretty much proof, as far as I was concerned, that it wasn't mine. I was still holding on to it. I was still believing that if I would die that minute, my soul would be saved. I believed that. I didn't understand why sickness was still in my body. I didn't understand that. There wasn't any understanding to that. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Whenever I looked at it, there wasn't a sensible answer whatsoever. But eight long years had taught me that pain was still in my body. Sickness was still ravishing it. The heart was still diseased, and it was dying, and because of that, I was dying. Every prayer prayed. Greatest men in the world laid their hands on me. I've said it before. I've been smeared with oil from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I've been shook until my liver almost came out as they were shaking the devil out of me, I guess. I've been uh, almost knocked down by man's hand, not by God's. I believe God can do this. Every conceivable means and ways of prayer had been mine. I was still drowning. (laughs) I was still drowning, and I finally came to the place where I said, God, I think I said it that night, my faith is not enough. If I'm depending upon this, this is what it's all about, I'll never be able to do it. And about that time, the love of God. Not my faith, anything about me in a sense other than I loved him, other than I was willing to die if this is really what he desired and what he wanted. There's certain fear and death, it's hard to give up. Uh, but still, I was willing to do all of this. But as far as the faith of being completely healed, I believe was gone out of my life. So I wasn't healed by my faith. I was healed because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I was healed simply because God loved. Amen. God reached down. God saw that he went to the very limit of it all, and he came and he rescued. What kind of a father would leave a child in position like that just because the child didn't voice the type of faith that he should have voiced? I couldn't do it, and you wouldn't do it, and we have a heavenly Father that is far greater, as far as that is concerned, than earthly fathers are. So God wouldn't leave his children to suffer alone. I'm not saying... That God's children will not suffer. In fact, I think the Bible tells us that if we reign with him, we'll have to suffer. I think the Bible tells us that. So I'm not saying that we're not going to suffer. I'm just saying this, that we never suffer alone. I believe David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That makes all the difference in the world, is to have God with us. Can you say amen? Amen. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The staff of life and the rod of correction is a comfort. The Bible tells us that. So we don't have to suffer alone. We don't have to have pain alone. Although we do suffer a lot of pain, suffer a lot of things, but he'll never shut his ears to our cry simply because our faith seems to be weak. 2 Timothy in the uh, Revised Standard Version of the Bible, 2 Timothy 2.13, simply says, even when we are too weak to have any faith left, he remains faithful to us. I like that, don't you? Even when we're too weak to have any faith left, he remains faithful to us and will help us, for he cannot disown us who are part of himself, and he will always carry out his promise to us. God has made promises to us. So my faith, your faith, all faith, has to rest on the loving kindness and concern of our Heavenly Father. We're commanded to glory in the love and everlasting kindness of our Father. Jeremiah tells us also, But let him who glories, glory in that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. Amen. So this morning God loves his children. Yes. Amen. He hears us before they call like a mother anticipates the baby's cry. I'm sure there's a lot of mothers here could just almost anticipate the cry of her child. It's something sensitive about the mother. And God is the same way. Did you know that God is a mother and a father and he's a nurse and and he's a companion and he's a comforter and almost anything you want in this life that that this life doesn't provide, that's what God is. That's why orphans can find some comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. have no one else to love them. That's why individuals that's wayward can find comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we need to find Him every day of our life. David cries these words in Psalms, Because you are so loving and kind, listen to me and make me well again. Amen. <laughs> I like that. What? Not because I have reached the pinnacle of what you desire, but because you are so loving and so kind. You see, somehow, some way we have lost the loving kindness and the tenderness and compassionate touch of the Master. Somewhere down the line, we we have organized it out. And we have placed our own idea of what it takes to attain and what it takes to receive. And when we place everything within our own grasp, it leaves nothing for God to do. And that puts him down a little bit lower than us. So God lets us know that life exists in his love. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't even have life. And so he came to redeem us and give us everlasting life as well as health. But that's through his love. Through his desire to watch us and see us grow. David goes on to say that he loves me. I think that was the one thing that motivated David more than anything else is that God loves him. Now, David did a lot of wrong things. And you can't, you can't say, well, look at David. We need to say, look at Jesus Christ. But David did a lot of wrong things in his life. But there's one thing so drastically different about David than it was about Cain and it was about Esau. David had a heart for God. The minute something went wrong in his life, he realized that, and his heart beat out for God, and he utterly repented of those things. He suffered for it. But there was something in David's heart that made him cry out for God, made him try to reach God. And he always knew that God loved him. What David knew, it wasn't his faith. His ability to walk the straight and narrow, that caused God's love to be in his heart. David was always assured God loved him because he was an honest and a contrite and humble spirit. That's what brings God's love in our life. Not when we become proud and haughty, not when we become super spiritual... Not when when we raise ourselves up to the highest pinnacle, that it is us, through our faith, that delivers these things to us. That belittles the love of God. That takes away the things of God. David was always assured that God loved him and that God would always come to his rescue when his faith was weak. I think that's probably one of the, uh, uh, the main ingredient of being able to live a successful, overcoming life. It's to realize that we're never overcomers by our own strength. You don't have the ability to overcome by your own strength. You say, well, I've got the Holy Ghost. Well, that is not your strength, that's God's. Amen? And you do have to utilize it. I don't care how, much, how, many, you have, how many have the Holy Ghost. If it's never used in our life, it's null and void. It's no value. That's why so many people can truthfully say, well, I live as good a life as they, and I don't have it. And it's probably truth because individuals are not living under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. They're living after their own damning nature. They're not being led by the Spirit. God's Spirit won't lead us wrong. And God's Spirit will always love us. And David was assured that when his faith was weak, God would still be there. Now, I'm not saying we never have faith. I think we do. I think if we didn't have faith of some sort, we wouldn't be here. But I'm talking about weak faith. And you're going to have to admit with me that there's sometimes you feel like you could uh, run for a troop and jump over a wall. Amen? That's usually whenever uh, God's been good to you, and maybe you've just come out of a good service, and maybe you feel good Physically, as well as there's no oppression mentally in your life, and then you feel like that. And there's other times you don't think you could punch your way out of a paper bag. But God's still God. Amen? He still loves us. He'll do just as much for us then as He would when we was about to jump over that wall. But it's not through our faith and our belief in Him. It's simply through His Divine love for us. David says, when I don't deserve any answer from him, he still loves me. All because of his tenderness. All because of his loving kindness. All because of his mercy. David says this again in Psalms 103. He is merciful and tender toward those who don't deserve it. How many of you know that? God, help us to think that we're ever going to get to the pinnacle of faith of deserving anything. Amen. Help us, God, to believe that we're never going to get where we're deserving of anything. Salvation is ours not because we deserved it, but because Jesus Christ of Nazareth saw our need with loving kindness, came down, took our place on the cross, and died in our place. And salvation is ours. Because he paid the price for it. So we don't have anything that we deserve. And we can't get anything because we deserve it. But David is saying he's merciful and tender toward those who don't deserve it. He is slow to get angry. <laughs> Aren't you glad, glad God's slow to get angry? Remember how Jesus was? I think, uh, I forget exactly where it was at whenever. In other words, they was angry. They knew they deserved to be burned, but there was Jesus as slow to get angry, full of kindness and full of love, never bears a grudge and never remains angry. That's the kind of God we got. How many of you know He don't bear a grudge? You do something against Him today, you repent of it, He don't even know about it. I mean, your sins as far as the East is from the West. You remember them, and you're supposed to. But He don't. Cast him in the sea of forgetfulness. And should he become angry, he doesn't ever remain angry. God does get angry. Amen. There are cases in the Bible where he got angry, but we're living in a day and age of mercy as anger doesn't come out all that much. But the greatest peace and the greatest comfort and the greatest joy that I've ever had in my life was when I convinced myself that God loves me. And he loves me so much that when I'm just about to go under, when I have really done everything I can, a lot of us want God to do it all. I mean, we don't want to work ourselves through any situations. We learn through the harshness of the treatment in this world gives us. We learn we become strong that way. But God allows us to wrestle, to battle, All of this, he's right there. We can't see him. But when we convince ourselves that God loves us so much, that regardless of what happens when we're just about ready to slip and turn loose, every situation in our life seems to be dark. He still loves us. And not one thing can hinder that love that he has for us. And he'll make a way for us. I said he'll make a way for us. He's not going to keep this world from riding us. But you ever notice it wasn't Peter's faith that day that the storm was raging and disciples went on a boat that was sinking. Did you ever look to see that it was not Peter's faith that got him to Jesus? Peter's faith got him out of the boat. But that's as far as Peter's faith got him. Peter began to sink. Now, what was it got him to Jesus? It was the love of Jesus Christ himself that stepped forward where he was sinking and grasped his hand and pulled him up and set him on that water, and that water becomes concrete. Peter's faith was gone. He was sinking. You know that as well as I do. Peter's faith got him out of the boat. Sometimes that's all God asks, is just to get out of the boat and realize this, that when we start sinking, it's going to be his love. And it wasn't the disciples' faith that stopped the storm either. How many of you know that? wasn't any faith they had at all that stopped the storm. It was the love of Almighty God to see that we were scared, they were hysterical, they were frightened. They were even afraid of Him when He appeared. So it say it was a ghost. In other words, they didn't have the right rational mind and thinking. Their faith was simply completely gone. And Jesus, because He loved them, dismissed the storm, and quietened the angry waves, and set them upon a smooth sea. (laughs) Hallelujah. I've had it to happen to me. Amen. I've just, storms of life, and I've just withered the storm. I've been in a little boat that's about ready to sink, and I've tried my faith out. I've tried my little wings to fly, and it just simply hasn't worked. I've done the best I could. And it looked like I was going to drown, and then comes Jesus walking on the highest waves. Hallelujah, Hallelujah to the one that made the winds and the waves. Dismissed them, told them to be quiet. And the wind ceased, thunder and darkness was gone. Hallelujah, and those huge waves become little ripples. As peace and serenity was on that sea that day, He bring the same thing to our lives. But there will be storms. There will be things that will will. Uh, well, we'll test our faith and belief in Him, but He's never going to leave us, and He's never going to forsake us. He's always going to be there, and He's never going to let us down. If you can get this ingredient inserted in the, uh, in, in the minds and hearts of people that are set on the sidelines now, believing they have never had any faith, they, God don't care for them, there's something about their life that can't reach what God expects. And they've just simply set this illusion if he could just get it in their hearts that God loves them. That God cares for them. That God can turn everything around and God can make it what it ought to be. That's lesson number one. Believe that God is not motivated by our faith alone. I'm glad he's not. I would be one miserable person if God was just motivated by the pinnacle of faith that I reach. But he's motivated by his love for me. When he sees me in trouble, when he sees it's greater than I can handle, he's there. And he is with you too. And he'll always run to where you're at. If you're drowning, he'll see that you don't drown. (laughs) Amen. If you're burning, he'll see that you don't burn. If you're grouping around, if you're sick and afflicted, he'll see that he'll be there with you. Amen. Amen. So lesson number two is, they say a right confession. You've got to have the right confession. I just turned the radio, television program off of an individual, and he's a very, I think, a very good individual, but his whole main theme is positive confession, positive confession. As long as you make a positive confession, everything is going to be all right. Just confess it, just Make the positive confession. Never say anything negative. Never say I can't, he can't, or nothing. Always a positive confession. But a a wrong confession alone doesn't hinder an answer. I want to take you back to one of the oldest lessons there is, in the oldest book in the Bible, that's the book of Job. I want us to consider this morning for a little while Job's wife. Everybody gets down on Job's wife. Of course, that's not anything new. Everybody gets down on women. Amen, men. I mean, if there's anything that can't be done, as far as that's concerned, it's a woman that can't do it. Amen? Amen. (laughs) I'll get my dinner today. There have been times when I wondered if I'd get my dinner, but I'll get it today. I'm tired of going hungry. (laughs) So let's look at this woman. You know Job's condition, don't you? Now, he must have been quite a sinner to get in a condition like that. Must have been quite a sinner. But yet, at the beginning, he says he was perfect and upright before God. Right. It. <laughs> now, God surely wouldn't cause anything like that to come on somebody. Job probably made the wrong confession. Somebody picked this out and said, the wrong confession was this, the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. <laughs> Well, it was already there before he said that. Somebody said, if you just fear something long enough, it'll be yours. (laughs) I sure hope not. (laughs) But Job's wife probably made the worst confession of anybody I know of when she looked at Job and said, curse God and die. Now, that certainly wasn't a positive confession. That's probably the worst one that ever in biblical history. And yet, if you look at it, in spite of that negative confession she made, she shared in the very same blessings as her faithful husband, Job. Amen. Very same blessings. You can read any commentary or hear any discourse concerning Job. You'll detect, and I have detected, and you will a disrespect for his wife. What type of a wife would look at a man, destitute and sick and afflicted for no common reason, what type of a wife would look him in the face and say, Job, curse God and die? So let's look at it right real close. This plagued me for a long time. I thought, you know, this, this, they had had children, bore children seemed to be a happy home. So you know there must have been some love involved. And then all at once, this lady comes and tells Job to curse God and die. So lately, after studying a lot, I have a new appreciation for that suffering woman. I think we've been a little bit too hard on her. Now, I want to point you out some reasons. After all those ten children that were killed was hers too. They wasn't just Job's, they was hers. No wonder she staggered in her faith. I mean, it's bad enough to lose one, but this lady lost ten, and her husband was dying of a ghastly disease, and the devil wasn't after her. The devil was after Job, but she suffered just as much, or maybe more than Job did. A woman usually suffers more over the death of children. There's something about it inside. I'm not saying a man doesn't suffer, but a woman usually suffers more of that. Plus, she had the added sorrow of watching her husband, Job, slowly die of a disease called elephantitis. That's a terminal disease. There's no cure for that. It makes you look ghastly. It gets you like the skin of an elephant, and it makes you draw. It's a ghastly thing. Study it sometimes. Look at it uh, sometime. We'll not go into it uh, this morning. Well, we need to look a lot closer to Job's wife and her sorrow. Now, I want you to stand there with her, if you will, this morning, as she weeps over the ten caskets that's all in a row. No more grandchildren. No more holidays together with the family. The only family left was Job, and he was dying of a slow, torturous death. Why don't I to give you at least a little rundown on that? Elephantitis, a disease causing intense heat. A burning, swelling from ulcers and cancerous sores, covering the skin with knotty bark-like texture such as the skin of an elephant, the disease grows progressively worse and affects the genital organs. In other words, this simply meant, as far as she was concerned, all her children was gone, but she could have no more children in his diseased condition, and his wife couldn't even look forward to raising a new family. And that was important in those days. And when you look at her, now I'm talking about negative confessions, the despair that must have come over her. I'm sure she lost all of her hope. She probably even got mad at God. Now, I've got mad at God. Now, you don't look at me so funny. You have too. You just well admit it. You've got mad at God. I've gotten mad at him, and I've pounded the altar, and I've stood and shook my finger at his face, and I've said, I don't understand this. I don't know what it's all about. And then he just lets me spell off, and then he's the gentle, compassionate father that he is, seeing that I'm a little bit beside myself. And he comes and soothes all the doubts and all the fears. Now, I don't excuse this morning what she said, I think it's tragic, really, that she didn't yield to God's love, but I can't understand the grief. I can't understand the pain that staggered her soul. I can understand how her, in her human sorrow, she couldn't fathom what was happening. All she knew, that was everything was lost. That's all she knew. Now, when you're facing loss, I mean extreme loss, when everything seems to be taken away from you, and yet somebody stands up and demands you have faith... I'd have to say it's unconstitutional. I'd have to say you really can't expect that. What can you say then? Just believe God's love for us. Just believe that in the midst of all the misery and all the anxieties and all of our unbelief and questioning God, believe one thing, God still loves you. And God will see you through. It don't ever be easy. It wasn't easy for Job. It wasn't easy for Job's wife. And like I said, the devil wasn't even after her. He was after Job himself. But Job's wife suffered right along, maybe even more so, uh, because she was a lady. But all she knew that everything was lost. And she thought there wasn't anything else to live for. And she looked at her husband dying anyway. And she just simply says, Job... Just abandon your faith in God. It's not getting you anywhere. Your faith in God. Get rid of your faith in God. Curse God and commit suicide. In other words, she was completely oblivious to the love of God. But that didn't keep God from loving her. Amen. There's been times i wondered where the love of God was, but that didn't keep God from loving me. It's greater in love than I am. But this was probably the most negative confession that ever been made, and yet you would think that if somebody did this, God surely would hold a grudge against her. <laughs> Amen. How many of us look at somebody that's faltered and failed, <laughs> and God has forgiven them, and there's something about human nature that just won't do it? I mean, we feel like that they've done God wrong or... Something like that. And so we're justified in our feelings. And all the time, God hasn't held a grudge. God is still saying His blood is still just as strong as it ever was. Anybody come and confess their sins, God is just to forgive them. I would to God He'd work on our minds and forgiveness the same. And work on our lives the same way. To realize that it is God himself that passes judgment, it's not us. God is a just God. Our judgment usually is unjust. And I would say this. I would say to to Christian people, and I've said it often, probably the most dangerous place you can get in God is when you become judgmental. It's dangerous. Because we leave ourselves open to a lot of things. We leave ourselves open for sickness. We leave ourselves open to trials and problems and troubles because we have simply put our place in the place of God and been judgmental. God tells us to leave these things alone. As far as judgment is concerned, for those that are outside, there's a white throne judgment. But for Christian people, there is the judgment bar of Christ where we all stand and are judged according to the deeds done in this body. You see, there is a place. Everybody that that, uh, seemingly does wrong in our life doesn't go to hell. But there is a judgment by God where we're judged according to what we have done in this world. And the degree of what we obtain in Christ is through that. Paul speaks of that four or five times. And we need not be uh, all, all that curious about it. It does happen. It is there. It is there for us. I said if we could ever become aware that everything we do after we become a Christian, amen, it's going to be lighted up in headlines at the judgment bar of Christ. Everything we thought was hidden is going to come to light there. The only thing I have ever said to God is this. Lord, I have slipped and fell so many times. And I've done so many things wrong. What The only hope I've got is that everything I have done right will so illuminate that none of this other will be seen or paid attention to. It's going to take some good walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. But God didn't hold a grudge against this woman because she made a negative confession. After the troubles was passed and Job was healed, God didn't hold her wrong confession against her. He didn't hold any of his blessings back from her because of our human outburst of fear. No, God blessed that lady. He blessed her right along with Job. I believe God understood her. Amen. I think God understands fallen Adamic nature. I think he understands us in our lostness, in our loneliness in our failures, in our weaknesses. That's not, that, that doesn't give us an open ticket to go out and falter and fall. I'm talking about when we've done everything we can. God is still faithful. Unfaithfulness seemed to reign in us, but she blessed this lady. I believe, as I said, I think God understood her, and I think he knew that she didn't mean what she said. I sure hope he believes that with me (laughs) because I've said a lot of things I really didn't mean. But what did God do? He looked beyond the frailty of humanity. He looked beyond this old Adam's nature. What he saw was what most of us never see. He saw the cry of this woman's heart. He saw the misery. He saw the pain He saw the woe. He saw her failures, and he looked past all of that, and and saw the cry of her heart, something humanity can't see. And he saw that, and he blessed her in spite of herself. And I like that. I believe that we can be blessed in spite of ourselves. Psalms 130 says, Lord, if you keep in mind our sins, then who can ever get an answer to his prayers? (laughs) But you forgive. What an awesome, awesome thing this is to realize that God forgives. James 5 and 4 says, You have heard of the patience of Job and seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is pitiful and of tender mercies. Psalm 72 and 12 says, He feels pity for the weak and needy and will rescue them. What I'm trying to say is this. Don't ever be condemned by the things that we said in haste, we said in fear. God is trying our heart. We serve a Father, heavenly Father that forgives, one that forgets, every doubting moment that we have, ever all the fearful words that we speak, and that was spoken out of despair. He seize the elements of human nature. But we have to be honest with God. Job's wife was honest. She said what her heart thought. Don't fake it. That's the problem with a lot of us. We fake it. There's a lot of people out there that are faking it. I want to tell you one of the things that happened. I had an uncle. A very healthy man, contacted sugar diabetes. Runs in a family. Never knew too much about church at all. Went to tent meeting. Prayed for by healing evangelist. Evangelist told him to throw away his insulin. Take no more shots. God had healed him. Uncle Jude came and was talking to Dad. Told him what the man said, and Dad said, "Jude, do you still have symptoms? Is it still well?" He said. Yeah, I don't feel any different. He said, Jude, go to the doctor, and if God has healed you, that healing will stand up." Uncle Jude said, No. said That man said that, that you can't trust man and that God has healed me and that I'm going to stand on that healing. He was faking it. Nothing had changed. He wouldn't go find out. It wasn't about, I suppose, a month or so later until at almost, a well, hardly 60 years old Uncle Jude was dead because he faked it. I mean, he was trying to do what some, I believe, good, honest-hearted person was telling them. But I still say this, if God heals you, it will stand up in court. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen? When God does the job, you don't need to be ashamed to go to the doctor afraid to go to the doctor and see what he says. They may not accept it. They had to run around on mine for I don't know how long, but it'll stand up. When God does the job, it's done. And if he hasn't done the job, he don't want you to lie for him. There's some reason somewhere in there that God is allowing us to be tested and tried. But Joe's wife was honest to God as she possibly could. She didn't understand all of these things at all. She didn't understand them. She didn't understand why she had to suffer. And I think we need to look at her and realize this. We don't understand why our prayers hadn't been answered a lot of times. We don't understand why there's suffering in our life a lot of times. Our heart is filled with questions, fears, and confusions. God asks us to get a hold of nothing, only Him. And if we need to tell it to somebody, best tell it to God. Go to Him sometime and say, God, I don't understand you. I prayed, I've cried. I've did my best and nothing's happened. So spill out your innermost feelings to God, whether it's negative or whether it isn't. Tell him how you feel. He let us cry it out. He listened patiently to our complaints, our fears. And not one time will he ever condemn you for it. Amen. He'll love you for it. He'll see who you are. Because we need Him. He realizes that. He knows our weaknesses and our unworthiness. If we was all where they claim we're supposed to be and get, once we attain that place, we wouldn't need God. We never get to the place where we're going to need the Savior. We have to have Him. All we need to do is turn to Him in love. Cry out, now, Lord, heal my unbelief. Take away my fears my confusions. Show me your love, because I need it so much. Help me submit to you and to your presence. Submission to God, I suppose, is probably one of the hardest things sometimes for us to do. We submit to him when we come to him hard for us to do that sometimes, but continued submission to him is probably still a problem for most of us. Problems, cares, troubles, all of this. But you notice in the first reading of our lesson, surely he hath borne our griefs. Now what's he saying here? Are these just words written by an offbeat prophet? Back lies dead in the dust of the centuries of yesteryear. Are these words, that's alive. Surely he has borne our griefs. It's not a grief. Any deep, so deep, with what God can help us bear it. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Wounded. Wounded. I guess we sit here in the 20th century, so far isolated from what took place that day on the cross of Calvary and before, the wounds that was placed upon him, bruised by the sadistic hand of man because they didn't understand him. The Bible says up here, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We couldn't understand why these things was happening. And then the chastisement of our peace was upon him. His stripes were healed. Peter says, "Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live into righteousness by whose stripes you were whom. When you really look at it, it all boils down, not by what faith we have and what we can conjure up, it all boils down to the love of Jesus Christ. He was the beginning of that. It's going to be the end of it. All the effort man can put forth, everything he can conjure up, not going to be enough to see him through still going to take just what it did when it shorted us the love of the Lord Jesus Christ I don't know about you this morning but I love him I'm glad he loves me and I'm glad that I learned a very valuable lesson there are limits to what I can do but there's no limit to what God can do he is a limitless God touching hearts saving souls bringing us into the end saved and filled with the presence of God. God bless you.